Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 51 of the OT Schoolhouse podcast. As always, my name is Jason Davies, your host for the show. And today we are going to be talking about uh, complex behavioral difficulties and some strategies that we can use to go ahead and potentially um, to support these students who might have these behavioral issues. Uh, That's a good way to put it, I think. And to do that, we have a very special guest on by the name of Dr. John Pagano. I'll give him a little introduction here in a moment. But first, I want to share a little bit of an announcement. I actually, as I was sitting down to record this introduction, I saw an email that the OT Schoolhouse A to Z school-based OT course has actually been board approved by the state of Florida as a continuing education course for eight hours of continuing education. That is awesome news for me. That's awesome news for everyone that's in the course. And I hope it's also awesome news for anyone who may uh, be interested in taking the course. So yeah, as we finish up and, or as we finish up this week, it's Friday as I'm recording this and I am, um, kind of putting the end to this week. This was actually the first week of the current A to Z school-based OT cohort. And it was just a great week. We have about 100 occupational therapists meeting together, and we're going over the entire process of school-based OT from the very beginning with 504 plans and SSTs all the way through the RTI process and uh, through evaluations, through the IEP and even eventually to when students are ready to graduate and how we can facilitate that process in an ethical manner. So that's kind of what I'm going through right now with those or with that cohort. And it's just been awesome. Um, It's a big, small group, if you know what I mean. Like it's not too big to be overwhelming, uh, but it's big enough that we all feel like we can collaborate a little bit together. And the conversations that we've been having have just been awesome. All right. So I want to go ahead and jump into today's content with our special guest, Dr. John Pagano. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce him right now. So Dr. John Pagano, he actually presents on what he has coined the term FAB strategies, and we'll get into what FAB strategies stands for in a second. He presents about these strategies internationally for therapists, as well as um, speech therapists, physical therapists, mental health therapists all over the world on improving self-regulation in children, adolescents, and adults with complex behavioral, developmental, and sensory processing challenges. He's been a therapist for over 30 years and has worked in just about, well, not every setting, but many settings, including the NICU, birth to three, sensory integration clinics, preschool, schools, group homes, and a psychiatric hospital setting. He's known for his humorous um, style, as you'll get to see in this episode, and he is—he has a lot of uh, his extensive background, I guess I could say, in working with young adults with autism spectrum and other complex behavioral and developmental challenges. Dr. Pagano holds a bachelor's of science degree in occupational therapy, a master's in special education, and a PhD in human development and family therapy. And I really think that that is key. You'll hear me talk about a little bit later how important I think it is that for those therapists who who were able to get a bachelor's in occupational therapy and become licensed and registered because it allowed them to go on and get master's in other diverse areas. And I think that is so beneficial to our field. And I'll talk a little bit about that 
um, as we go, as we get into the interview, you'll hear that later. Um, but more about Dr. Bergano, he is certified in pivotal response treatment, neurodevelopmental treatment for children and infants, early childhood mental health, uh, QST sensory massage for autism, and he is also an instructor for positive behavioral support and movement-based learning. All right, so um, that is just a lot. He has done a, he has done many things. Um, I, I didn't even mention that he's actually the vice president of the Connecticut Occupational Therapy Association and has several published papers um, with actually people that have been on this podcast before. And he is very involved in the OT community um, up there in Connecticut and the surrounding areas. So please, please, please help me welcome to the show, Dr. John Pagano. Good morning, John. Welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. How are you doing this morning? Great. I've listened to your podcast before, so it's really cool to be on it. Yeah, and actually you reached out to me in an email, and it sounded like you were familiar with one of our previous uh, guests on the show. And uh, tell us about that. Well, I got um, contacted by AOTA and joined this thing we call School Mental Health Working Group. It's a bunch of us that meet together by Zoom and uh, like write papers together, but like have never met sometimes. And Susan, um, two Susans have been helpful, Susan Basic and Susan Cahill. Um, I wrote a paper with Susan Cahill um, because it was bothering me that when I had a kid in a psychiatric hospital and I was sending them back to their public school, the principal would say, you can't give him OT in our school because he has no handwriting problems. And I was like, we do more than that. Susan Cahill is this big professor. And so her and me wrote a paper and it's saying that the AOTA says we can do more than handwriting. We can work on kids' social skills, um, on helping them not punch the teacher. There's a lot of other things we can do. So this way, people now have the blessing of the AOTA that our scope of practice includes mental health, social skills, handwriting, and lots of other things. That's fantastic. So is that an AJOT article or is that like an AOTA paper? It's an AOTA paper, but I'll send it to you because there's so many resources at the AOTA that you almost have to be a tech expert to dig out what you want in under five minutes. <laughs> that is true. That is, they have a lot of resources on their page and you can kind of get lost if you don't know how to use their page a little bit. I completely agree, but they, did re- they recently redid the page and it looks beautiful. So I got to give them credit for that. Um, yeah. Yes, cool. And so for everyone listening out there, he's going to send me that PDF so, um, or the link to it. So be sure to check out otschoolhouse.com forward slash episode 51 uh, to get all the resources from today's episode. All right. So you talked a little bit about that. Um, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of background into yourself as an occupational therapist? Well, I'm going to give you guys a trip in history. I'm uh, 62 years old and I had a sister who had Down syndrome and died of pneumonia. And when I was 14, I saw someone and their 
tongues looked different. I'd never seen them before. And I felt kind of scared by them. And that really upset me. So I went into uh, down the street was a facility where they house children with developmental disabilities. And I said, I want to be a volunteer and just like jump into it. Mm -hmm. And this lady was trying to feed one kid. Another kid was crying. So she took this little girl who had um, cerebral palsy and threw her in my arms. And immediately she just conformed to my arms and stopped crying. And I said, this is my thing. Like, this is what I was supposed to do. <laughs> so I volunteered when I was 16. They hired me as a recreation therapist. And then when I was 18, I started OT school and got my bachelor's in OT. That's what it was in those days. And a <laughs> license. And um, worked in pediatrics and developmental disabilities, um, mostly school systems. And then I got a job in a clinic and I was doing birth to three. I was doing clinic sensory integration. I was doing everything. Uh And they sent me out to do our school mental health contract. We had some locked psychiatric hospitals that had adolescents in them. And the, because they're kids, they had to go to school. And if they had a handwriting on their IEP, then they needed an OT. So I went there and they realized they wanted to cut seclusion where they lock kids in rooms and they wanted to cut out um, restraint where they jump on kids. Mm -hmm. And everyone wanted to stop that. All the aides wanted to stop that. The superintendent wanted to stop that. And they felt that I had a role in it. So they hired me full time. I left the clinic and I've been there for 11 years now. Oh, wow. They let me add a second OT. Oh, nice. So it's a hospital, um, the only locked hospital for adolescents in Connecticut. And then I also work next door in the PRTF. It's like a step down unit, a psychiatric residential treatment facility for adolescent girls and now there's two ot's there's a new school ot and it's a big part they basically bought me anything i want so i've weighted blankets i have weighted vests i have steamroller deluxes i have a punching bag anything i want they order for me so i've been really blessed yeah Wow. And so you said it's for teenagers, it sounds like, but it's a hospital. They still have to get their education, right? Right. So I also help out in the school, but I'm not technically the school therapist anymore. They contracted someone else to do that. But that school is housed within the hospital? Yeah, within the hospital. That's a very interesting setting then. It's been a real, they didn't have OT and... Then they had school OT, and now they have two OTs, and their other school has OT. We got Yale um, Adolescent Hospital to add OT. Once they see what we can do, Mm -hmm. they add it in. In the old days, when I graduated in 81, psychiatry was a major part of occupational therapy. Uh We've started to drift away, and I think it's a shame because we felt that If someone chopped off their hand in a meat cleaver or someone suddenly had a spinal cord injury, Mm 
It wasn't going to just be physical. It was going to have psych implications. And if you didn't know how to handle that, you weren't going to get anywhere. And I think that's still true. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? There is a big push. I mean, in California, um, we have, it's called OTAC, Occupational Therapy Association of California. And there's a few people that are really uh, grabbing the reins on mental health and really pushing for it. And uh, they're really trying to get people interested again in mental health. And that's, it's just great. Um, Yeah, I just really like what they're doing. Since I started back into being in that working group, with the two Sues and other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I really realized that, you know, it's a lot of money. I pay like $150 a year, but they really advocate for us legally. And then I added to my bucket list that I wanted to be a part of the state association. So I called them up and they said, great, you're vice president. Oh, wow. Probably a mistake. I would <laughs> suggest people start with like doing media or something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I did it for four years and I met some really cool people. Oh, that's fantastic. Man, well, thank you so much for advocating for the profession. Um, we all appreciate that. All right, so one thing that I I find really, um, I don't know, I. I I just really appreciate when OT used to be at bachelor's and I'm going to tell you why it's because when you meet people that are slightly older or experienced and they have their bachelor's in OT, they always have additional credentials versus newer therapists. We had go through so much school just to get our master's or our OTD. It almost limits our ability to then go out and get a master's or a doctorate in something else. So when I was looking at your information, yeah, right? And so when I was looking at your information, I saw that you have a few extra master's degrees and even a doctorate. So I wanted to ask you about those. Why did you get them and what are they? I was working as an OT in pediatrics and I felt like I didn't know enough, like about language and stuff. So I went to the local college at night and in summers, because I was a school OT, and did my internship in the summers and got my master's in early childhood special ed. They made me take courses in speech pathology, in regular ed, uh, teacher courses, and it was really, really helpful. And then uh, they said, suddenly they said, now you're supposed to also be able to rehabilitate the parents. I had parents who were, who were coke addicts. I oh had gosh. parents who were um, intellectually disabled. I didn't know how to work with parents. Mm-hmm. So I went to UConn and got my doctorate in the marriage and family therapy program, like uh-huh. going three days a week. And uh, it was really a helpful experience. I didn't become a teacher and I didn't mm-hmm. become a marriage family therapist. I just stayed licensed in OT, but I'm really glad I did it. Awesome. That's great. That's, that, it, I just find it so awesome when OTs just have degrees and other things. I just think that's amazing because I'm sure that you introduced many people in those fields to occupational therapy and not because you were purposefully trying to, but just because you ventured out of your realm and got some education in another area. And so I just think that's really cool. I really, um, well, I don't want to get you in political trouble. I feel strongly that they shouldn't up the credentials for CODAs to make them be bachelors. bachelors. 
that's why we got so many men and people in color who don't have much money because when I graduated in 81, it was outrageous. I had to go to a private college. It was $5,000 a year with room and board. My students say they pay, pay that for books now. Oh, yeah. And so you end up with this crazy, crazy debt that I'm afraid only elite people are going to be OTs and CODAs someday. And I don't want that. Yeah. that would, people want people who look like them, you know? Yeah, and I think um, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that do agree um, or have similar feelings that you have about that. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. I don't want to get too much into it yet, but I think that might be a great podcast for another day. Um, <laughs> but today we are actually here to talk about um, children, adolescents who display complex behavioral concerns. And so uh, we're actually going to go through a little bit of assessments about how you assess we're going to talk a little bit about the research, and then we're also going to talk a little bit about um, the treatment and, and how you go about helping these students and adolescents that you work with. So, um, you know what? Let's start off with, um, first, let's give a definition to complex or challenging behaviors. What are you talking about when you use that term? I especially enjoy working with kids with complex behavioral challenges. Not the kids who are a tiny bit naughty, kids who punch, kids who spit, kids who are sexually inappropriate. Um, because I feel it's an important part of OT. Functionally, if somebody can't write really, really well, they can still make it in life. But people don't wanna live with someone who's violent, they don't want to have them in the workplace. It's very, very um, problematic functionally if you have inappropriate behavior. And that's something that I feel we OTs are good at helping with. Within like two weeks, my OT students at the psychiatric hospital are as effective in treating as I am. And one time they kind of conned me because I have a lot of friends who are in um, the colleges. Uh -huh. So they said, I said, I really think I can only handle one OT student. So they said, all right, but well, we're going to send four and get rid of three and pick one. And what? they sent me four fantastic students. I said, I really kind of like them all. And they said, okay, well, how about you take them all? <laughs> so I did. I took four. There was just me. And what they noticed was we have this big shot doctor who works for Yale and he did a study and found that there was more incidences of violence on the weekends when there were no OTs than during the week when my students were there. Wow. And I think it's simply because we're taught to value the person. There's this OT president who said, OTs, ask what matters to you, not what's the matter with you. Mm -hmm. and, and I love that because I think that's how we were taught. You yeah. know, that everybody's a person. Uh, they may have a disease or they may have a, a, a mental illness. Lots of people do, but they're a person. And if you could get to what is meaningful to them, then you're going to be able to motivate them to get better. Exactly. No, you are absolutely correct on that. So, um, yeah, I love that quote. Um, 
I, I'm trying to think of who I, I've heard it too. And I'm trying to remember which president it was, but I will look that up and I will get that out there. Um, someone out there is screaming at me like it is this name. I'm sure of it. All right. So for the purpose of today, then you talked a little bit about complex behaviors there. Um, what, what is that ideal student that as we're talking today, or that ideal adolescent, um, can you give us a picture of who we're talking about today? Well, one of the reasons I went back and got my doctorate was I was taught what to do if someone has autism spectrum disorder. I was taught what to do if someone has post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but what I get very frequently and what I think OT is uniquely suited for is a kid who has, say, autism spectrum disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, has been abused, has been in 15 different homes, and also has a lot of um, difficulty following directions because they have a sensory processing disorder. So they've got all four, and school didn't tell me what to do with all four, but I think it kind of gave us the foundation to figure that out. And so I think OTs are very good at that. And a traditional psychologist might not have training in developmental disabilities. When someone has a mental illness and developmental disabilities, it's a little bit of a different ball game. And that's what I think we're good at. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, and I really appreciate how OTs just look at the whole picture. Um, and this kind of leads me to my next question is, I don't know, have you ever had the chance to work with BCBAs and behavioral therapists? Yeah, a lot of times. And it's been interesting. I prefer something that's very research proven, but they're terrible marketers. It's called pivotal response training. And what happened was this ABA expert who studied with Lovos and all that was smart enough to marry a speech therapist. And she became a doctor with him. Um, they're called the Kogels. And doctor and Dr. Kogel developed pivotal response training. Oh. It is ABA, it uses ABA, but in order to developmentally progress people's motivation, social, emotional skills, and their generalizability. And I use it a lot for kids who aren't autistic but need more motivation, mm -hmm. better social skills, and better generalizability. So I don't see ABA is evil or anything, but I like better this pivotal response training brand of it because I find that it's important to work on those. An example would be, let's take motivation. If a child gives you a good answer, his, he tried really hard, but he didn't get it right, you reward him anyway because you want him to become more motivated. An example of generalization and social skills is you embed a human being in the reinforcer. And it's usually what I would consider an OT activity. A kid says jump and I jump on a bed with him. So he can jump higher because I'm jumping with him and I weigh more than he does. <laughs> or he says swing, so I push him on a swing. 
rather than he says swing and I shove an M&M in his mouth. <laughs> it's much more practical. It's, the adult is embedded in the reinforcer and you're going to, if he gives you a cruddy try, you're not going to reinforce him. But if he gives you a good approximation of saying swing and he tried his damnedest, you're going to push him anyway. Yeah. yeah. Then you're going to ask for a little more. <laughs> and they're very respectful to OT, obviously to speech, because the wife mm. is a speech pathologist. And I just like that brand a little better. Okay. And yeah, again, um, I'll have to put that information up on the pod or up on the research page so that people can find more about that. Um, one thing about, about ABA is that I think that there's so many things like you're talking about, we can do a lot of those strategies that ABA does. In fact, we, we already do many of those ABA strategies. Um, what I do find at least in the schools is in my opinion, I see ABA therapists often they're coming in now. I don't know how it is in Connecticut in the schools, but in California, there are a lot of ABA therapists now coming into the schools. And in my opinion, it's often because, like you said earlier, we are seen as A, the handwriting specialist, and B, because our caseload is so high that we often kind of almost push away from maybe taking on those cases that we're going to talk about today, those behavioral type of cases. Um, but yeah, that's just kind of my two cents in it. So I want to move on to behavior, sorry, um, assessments, assessments of behavior. And so... When you get a new patient, a new client, a new student, what type of assessments are you using? The first thing I do is a trigger and coping strategies form. And I'll put that on your website. I adapted it from the Massachusetts Safety Tool. And although it's copyrighted, I give it out. I give everyone permission to use it. So it's a bunch of pictures on the first page. And you pick the three pictures that most um, appeal to you. So first are environmental triggers. It's something that happens. And when it happens, after it happens, you do what gets you in trouble. You cut yourself, you punch somebody, you swear at somebody. So an environmental trigger is a bunch of pictures of like, I'm held or restrained, I'm told no, which is the biggest one in the research. <laughs> um, I'm told I can't do something, I'm told, um, you know, I can't do what I want, I'm tired, I'm hungry. And they circle the three pictures that are their biggest environmental triggers. Mm -hmm. The next page is their body triggers. What do they do before they punch? I make a fist before I yell at somebody. So that's my environmental trigger. Some people cry, get a red hot face, act silly, swear. So that they are identifying their warning situations and their warning body movements. A lot of times we have to figure this out for oh, yeah. them. But you're starting to ask them about that. Then the next five pages they have to pick three coping strategies that they're already using and they work. And then we're going to try to expand on those. So that's a pretty much an eval I do with everybody. And the reason is a lot of times when I get kids, their behavior is so challenging 
and they've already had OT, they know I can't help them. So they're not going to cooperate. So this gives you a way to trick them into showing them that you got something to offer them. So things they don't know, like TheraBand, I'll teach them TheraBand. Hitting a punching bag, I'll teach them. A scooter board, I'll give them a ride on a scooter board. So whenever they see coping strategies they don't know, even tense and relaxed muscles, you teach it to them Mm -hmm. as we're going along. So it gets them, I give it first, it gets them to do the assessment. Yeah, yeah. And then I give the sensory profile. Often I'll have the short form filled out by a teacher or a parent ahead of time because it often has things, especially if I see a kid once a month that I can't eat, I can't fill it out good. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather get other people to fill it out. But yeah. they have to fill out every question. That's what you tell them. Make your best guess. Otherwise, I can't score. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And one thing about the sensory profile, um, do, you, do you use the school factors that that gives you? Um, I've been using, just because I learn one thing I like and I keep it. I use the short sensory profile too. I like it for children because it's fast. Mm-hmm. And because it's reliable and valid, but also what it does now is Winnie Dunn puts what's sensory, like I put my hands over my ears to protect my ears from sound, versus what's non-sensory. She doesn't like if I call it behavior, but <laughs> tantrums, spitting at people. Yeah. So that you have a bunch of things and you get a score of do they have sensory problems, do they have behavior problems, or do they have both? Usually they have both, but it it helps you to organize. Usually kids have both problems, but sometimes they don't. They just have a sensory problem. And those are the kids you get, tons of them coming to your clinic in September because they hold it together in school and then beat the hell out of their brothers and sisters. It's true. So they can hold it together. Mm -hmm. Also, parents have complained that doctors give Ritalin at school, but then none at home because they don't like parents. So I went to a (laughs) a pediatric psychiatrist. I said, why do you do that? And he said, I do that because they won't sleep all night. It's actually a stimulant. So Mm -hmm. if I give it in school, it'll wear off by nine o'clock at night. So that's why they do it. But still, Mm -hmm. we who are clinic therapists or even school therapists have to be sensitive that maybe we need to drop the demands at home. And like my son has five hours of homework. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I didn't get five hours of homework in the old days. I didn't (laughs) get much. Yeah. And I think our teachers are becoming more aware of that. And they really are telling the parents, you know what? the demands are so high here at school. Um, and the, the parents are saying the same thing. You know, he works very hard at school. When he comes home, he needs a break. Or he or she just needs a break when they come home. So. And a behavioral tool that I found helpful, again, from pivotal response training, is interspersed easy. So instead of giving them an hour of homework, you give them 10 minutes. And a lot of really smart teachers can give them 10 minutes of math that has all the concepts that the hour has. Yeah. 
So they go through, and what I'll do for kids with low frustration tolerance is every other math problem will be one they already know. Mm-hmm. So they won't get as frustrated. So numbers two, four, six, eight, ten are new, but one, three, five, seven are things I know they're going to get right. So you don't get them as frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree with that. Okay. So you had listed a few other assessment tools that you, it looks like you use, um, and they were behavioral, it seemed like, or a little more on the behavioral side. I think the DECA, the D-E-C-A, what's that one? Yeah, the DECA is the Devereux Early Childhood Assessment. It's a, do you um, have, most of you probably do the PBIS curriculums? Yeah, Positive Behavioral Intervention yeah, Strategies. What, what that stuff really is about. There are different flavors, like different brands. It's scientific, but what it says is if children have high attachment, initiative, and self-control and low behavior concerns, they're going to do well even if they have some neurological problems, even if they have some malnutrition, even if they have a, a very dangerous neighborhood they live in. So what PBIS tries to do is build up attachment initiative and self-control so you get a score of how low is their attachment initiative self-control if it's two standard deviations below the mean they're really low in initiative or in attachment or in self-control and it's very easy for an ot to build it up if a kid's got poor initiative you reinforce them for doing things for himself if a kid's got low self-control, you have them do things like Simon Says or Red Light, Green Light, where Simon Says, do this, do this. You want to do that, touch your head, but if you do, you're out of the game. And when you think about behavior problems, punching somebody or swearing at somebody is a lack of motor inhibitory control. You should have kept your mouth shut. But you didn't. You said it. <laughs> you should have kept your fists open, but you punched somebody with them. And so I think it's something we as OTs are very good at teaching. If um, attachment is something, then you have them do a special thing, just you and them. You work on your relationship. Not Freudian attachment. It's attachment of using teachers and therapists the way you're supposed to use them. Some of my kids, if, uh, if they write two and two is five, the teacher marks it wrong, they'll slap the teacher. Well, the teacher's marking it wrong because it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And you really need to learn how to accept that, uh, that, that correction. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I'm trying to push more into the classrooms next year is to help the teachers build that relationship a little bit. Um, but I can see your mind turning and, and <laughs> I know sometimes in this podcast, we get a little bit off topic, but I want to bring that back a little bit to the right. DECA. So is that what the DECA kind of looks at then? Is it a questionnaire or what is it? And what? Yeah, impact- it's a quick questionnaire uh-huh. and it runs from preschool all the way up to 18 years old. It's something that's commonly used in the schools to Mark somebody social, emotionally maladjusted. The psychologists uh-huh. use it, but they, they call it the, um, instead of calling it the DECA, 
they call it something else. But it's the same questions normed for different ages. You say, how much in the last month did the kid do something that made adults smile or show interest in him or her? If never, that's a low attachment score for that item. Gotcha. How often do they touch adults or children inappropriately? If they very frequently did, then that's going to be a problematic score for behavior concerns and self-control. Okay. So it kind of breaks down those areas that you just described to us. Yeah. And okay. I, I kind of will in the body of my OT eval talk about the very extreme scores and then just talk about, do they have a problem in attachment initiative or self-control? Gotcha. Okay, cool. Thank you for explaining that. Um, you had one other one, the ASQSE. Questions about behavior function, QABF. And this I've gotten some criticism for OTs from OTs for using, but I feel it's very, very important. It gives you the functional reason that kids are misbehaving. What the research shows is if kids are misbehaving to escape work and every time they punch somebody, I take them out of their work and give them sensory input, I'm going to make them worse. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're the function of their behavior is sensory input, which the behaviorists also call something else. They call it non-social, but it's really sensory. That's mm -hmm. the kid with autism who's rocking because he digs rocking. Rocking gives him something. Mm -hmm. So if I give him a rocking chair to rock in instead, it's going to make him better. But if he's doing it not for sensory, if he's doing it um, to escape work, then I've got to work with my speech pathologist and figure out a way that he can appropriately tell me he wants to stop working rather than punching. Mm -hmm. So when a kid, even if they're on a behavior program and, they're, and you're doing it and they're getting worse, then you need to do the QABF. Okay. And that will quickly, it's a check sheet you can do and you can even as the OT fill it out. It's very simple questions, not, not real intimate questions like the sensory profile. And it tells you why are they being bad? Are they, but you have to get a very specific behavior. It can't be like tantrum. It's got to be punches people. It's got to be screams. You're answering the questions for one specific observable behavior. Oh, okay. That's so different. You the worst one first. So <laughs> there you go. It's got to be something, I always say something my mother could see. She's not an OT, but she can get what punching is. Mm -hmm. She doesn't get what tantrum is. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, tantrum is a very broad term for, um, it can mean very different things between this kid and that kid and, and the other kid. Tantrums can look very different. So, all right. I want to get into a little bit of research. You've already thrown a little bit in here and there, but um, in the resources that you sent me, the first area that you talked about, because I mean, maybe you need to talk a little bit about your strategies, but um, Primarily, the three areas that you focused on with research is mindfulness, sensory, and then also um, environmental impacts on behavior. 
And so I want to start a little bit with the mindfulness and behavior. What research has really, um, has really just like motivated you or what research have you found very helpful? My kind of side job is I give workshops. I give uh, workshops for teachers. I give two-day workshops with ERI for school therapists and for um, occupational physical speech. And so when I give these workshops, what I did was, and for myself personally, I developed a form I call Fab Strategies Form. I'm going to put it on your website. And it's got four areas, environmental adaptations, sensory modulation, that's B. Mm -hmm. C is positive behavioral support, and D is physical self-regulation. So I got those four areas. And when I go in and I treat, I check off what do those strategies work. Because sometimes in the schools, I'm 62. They have me going out four times a year. I can't remember a kid when I see him four times a year. So mm -hmm. when I see him the first time, I write down what strategies worked well. And I have the teacher try them. Then when I come back, I keep the ones that worked well and I try to add a couple more so that I can remember. So I use it as a daily data sheet, whether I see the kid weekly or monthly. And then it makes it easy to make it into a home program for teachers, for next year's OT, for the new school. So it's got double value and it can be done very quickly. My biggest frustration when I work in schools is I don't have enough time. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to really rely on the carryover. Um, so exactly. So I saw the Fab Strategies worksheet. And so um, I, I want to talk about that research a little bit. What is the mindfulness research that has helped you to develop that Fab Strategies? There's a lot of... What I do is environmental adaptation. There's a lot of research. People will say there's no research. I'm real lucky because my work gives me an hour a day just to do research because oh, wow. we're a teaching hospital. So, and it takes an hour a day. There's so much stuff coming down. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of evidence in environmental adaptation that what helps students learn is to highlight the curriculum, the stuff you want them to pay attention to. So if they're going four plus four equals zero, they're minusing. They should have been plusing. If you take a yellow highlighter over all the pluses, you can help him to pay attention that it's pluses. And that's been proven, research proven, to help children. Another is to decrease... <laughs> the stuff you don't want them paying attention to. So we use, there's proof we use study carols mm -hmm. to help kids pay attention to their paper. If we use heavy duty walls to separate the sound or noise canceling headphones to reduce the noise level. So you wanna get rid of basically all the distractions and you wanna increase curriculum related things. I might have a child read a story and as he's reading the story, listen to that same story he's reading on headphones. So he has auditory and visual channels. I might have the teacher have a microphone, it's called an AV system and the kid's got one in his ear. So what the teacher's saying 
is what he's hearing loudest. Mm -hmm. And I might use noise canceling headphones to help him um, to not be distracted by the other kids. Or if he doesn't like wearing them, what I do is give one to the teacher and teacher will whisper to him, there's going to be a fire drill. I got your headphones. So the fire drill goes off. He's expecting mm -hmm. it. She hands him his headphones and he doesn't make weird sounds during the fire drill. Yeah. yeah. And so then have you ever incorporated um, some sort of yoga or meditation or anything like that into the classroom? Yeah, that's the sensory modulation part. So tense and relax muscles and I'll um, send them like, um, one of my uh, PDFs of, of uh, what a course might look like. But tense and relaxed muscles is proven to work, but it lasts an hour when the teachers do it and the kids just slap each other. So what I have them do is just tense their face, raise their shoulders up, and tense and release their hands. Mm -hmm. It's got to be a two-minute exercise that the teacher could do it fast or you could do it at the beginning of every OT session and then move on. Gotcha. All right, cool. Um, one thing that I saw in here, and you already kind of talked about it, is that sensory um, as a reinforcer versus sensory as an actual treatment. Um, and you had some research about that, I think. Yeah, it's both. And again, I'll put it on your website, but we do have a lot of good research. In fact, the University of North Carolina just added OT as an evidence-based practice, sensory integration, I'm sorry, as an evidence-based practice for autism. People have been working their butts off these smart researchers like Lucy Jane Miller and, and, and Winnie Dunn and stuff. And so they have finally done the quality of research but it's not going to change. A lot of pediatricians and a lot of behaviorists believe uh, sensory integration is garbage, and they're going to keep saying that, mm -hmm. even with the evidence-based practice that's finally come out. Um, so we need to know the research, too. And that's why um, I give it to OTs fast, because you don't get an hour day to do research, but I do. So I can give it to you. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what I think those of us who do speaking, that's our job to get the research for you guys. <laughs> yes, and we appreciate it. Um, I try to get some myself too. So the practical side of things, um, you talked about how you see kids a lot of times in, I don't know, is it more, if we call it a pullout setting, you're seeing kids individually or in a group. Um, but what are some of your go-to strategies then for a teacher? You talked about your fab strategies paper. Um, I know you have strategies on there and everyone can get that at the show notes, but what are some of your go-to strategies to give to the teacher? A couple of different things. One is to um, optimally stable seat kids who have cruddy balance like how to make sure that their feet are touching the floor and stuff and how to use disco sits for kids who have uh, good balance, but are just really fidgety and that type of thing to um, 
specifically target the problem that they're having. I also find that the forms are helpful because a lot of times when I go into a classroom, all the other kids start bothering the teacher so I can't talk to her. So having these sheets enable you and the teacher to have a really fast written backup to what strategies you're asking her to do. Because we aren't always paid enough to communicate with each other. I mean, every principal wants us to, mm -hmm. but it's not always practical when the teacher has your undivided attention. Absolutely. Yeah. And I always tell people, you know, you can't just go into a classroom and interrupt them and start talking to them. I mean, as much as you want to, and you feel like you should be able to, um, you just destroy the whole aspect of the classroom when you do that. And so you have to be careful and you have to actually plan to have a conversation. You can't just have it at 11 o'clock in the morning when they're in the middle of math time. Um, so, yeah. There's been some really cool ideas out there too. Um, one is like block time that I found helpful. So if I have three very disabled kids in a particular preschool classroom, what I'll do, special ed, is I'll put them back to back. So they're three mm -hmm. half hours, 8.30, 9, 9, 9, 9.30, 9.30, 10.00. And then I'll, with their parents' permission, use their time three ways. I'll pull them out 20 minutes. I'll work with all three of them as a group for an hour a week. And in addition, I'll go into the whole classroom and give, say, a lesson to the whole class. And I find that that's one easy way to do it. Some therapists are playing with, they're hired for so many hours and they handle all the PPT. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't got the okay for that, but I think that's the coolest way. Yeah. And so that way you can um, really make a difference. And it's a challenge though, yeah. um, because there are times that the class is so chaotic, you have to pull out. But I've also gone into classrooms and worked with my kids right in the classroom. I consider it direct because I'm only with my one kid, but I'm sitting next to him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really, I really like that mixed methods that you kind of talked about where you're working with one, a kid individually, then in a group and then in the classroom. Cause that just really, in my opinion, that helps with the generalization back into the classroom. And, you know, I always tell people, what's the point of doing therapy if it's only going to help them when they're with us? We're always trying to get them to be able to be in the natural environment, right? We want them to succeed in the natural environment, not just for 30 minutes in therapy. So I think it keeps us honest too. Oh yeah. Because does it really work in the natural environment? And sometimes it keeps me honest because mm -hmm. I've conned myself in one to one. In <laughs> yeah. That's not really how most learning takes place. Mm-hmm. All right, so that was, the, that was some strategies for the teacher. Do you use the same strategies if you're giving any information to the parent or do you provide different strategies or what do you think about um, communication, communicating with the parent and providing them some help? Again, that's why, I mean, I really use this sheet constantly. On the bottom of the FAB strategy sheet, it says signature of parent guardian that oh. they agree with and support this program because that way you can send it home in their lunchbox if you have to mm -hmm. and get them to sign. So if you're doing any kind of touch or you're giving a chewy or a rift in chair, 
you get the parent to sign it, you shove it in a drawer, and if there's ever a problem, you have parental permission to do these things. Yeah. Because I've had friends who have gotten in trouble, even for giving a rifting chair to a girl with cerebral palsy who was falling out of her chair and smashing her head because her parents didn't want her looking funny. Uh, so this way you've quickly gotten the parent permission and you're covered. There you go. Man, and it's interesting just to think about. I mean, I hadn't even thought about Chewy's, but I don't know how it's, what it's like in Connecticut or what they're talking about schools coming back into session, but um, I know that Chewy's are not the most sanitary things in the world. And with COVID-19 and everything going on, um, I can only imagine that schools might say no Chewy's. I um, appreciate that you're keeping me on track and I, I would love how you're doing it, but I want to I go off track one more time. And That's just say that I've been so impressed. Uh, I'm the vice president of our Connecticut OT Association, and they have this community of practice school system that goes on for an hour a week and meets. And the job they're doing, I'm just so impressed. I, you know, they're using video they're tracking down kids they've lost mm -hmm. these ot's are just um amazing to me the people in the school and i just wanted to thank your audience I, I, i'm just really amazed at how they've coped with a situation that they didn't have much warning for oh, it's, yeah. it's amazing to me it, it's it's been crazy i mean in the in the snap of a finger I mean, we went from seeing kids in the classroom to seeing kids on Zoom. And I mean, no training and teachers too. I mean, shout out to the teachers who are doing amazing work as well. Um, and all the, all the school employees really, um, and the parents too, of course. But yeah, it, it was a big shift in a very limited amount of time. <laughs> and so, yeah. I thought it was incredible. Yeah. Um, they say OTs are adaptive. <laughs> I think everyone's had to adapt. Everyone's had to do it. I mean, it's crazy. But um, yeah, no, I just want to follow up though. I, I really don't, I can see schools, I mean, saying just, hey, sorry, we can't do chewies anymore because of the saliva. Like you kind of, um, I think you kind of mentioned was, you know, a kid takes out their chewy and saliva kind of flings across the room. I mean, so that's not going to be able to happen. You could try to use it at home, you know? Yeah. Um, I think in school, I've become very um, much by necessity, so I didn't get frustrated, seeing myself as a consultant. A consultant gives teachers and parents advice, mm -hmm. and they're welcome to take it or leave it. What I do to up the ante is when I'm first giving a teacher or I'm first giving a parent a home strategy, I give them one I'm sure is gonna work. You know how as we get old as therapists, we kind of know what's working effectively. So I've tried this, this is gonna give them a lot of bang for their buck, and that's all I give first. Mm -hmm. And I make a copy, and if they lose it, I give them another copy. But then if they say give me more, then those are the teachers I know I'm gonna work a lot with, or those are the parents that I'm gonna spend yes. time with the home program, because they've got time to do it. Yeah, no, and you know, I, that's the other thing you gotta tell people is that some people will be receptive, others will not. And understand where to focus your time, 
Um, yes, you know, you are going to have some kids in that classroom with the teacher that is not receptive and you need to give those kids as much time as you can, as much energy as you can. Um, but when it comes to finding a teacher that really wants to work with you, take it and run with it. Um, cause that's where you're going to see so much improvement in those kids, not just right now, but in the long term too. So, um, absolutely. Well, John, I think it's about time to wrap up. I want to say a huge thank you, but I also want to give you the opportunity to share any last thoughts and also um, contact information for you or where people can learn more about you and complex behaviors. Um, I'm going to put on your website the Fab Strategies form. I also wrote a Fab Strategies book so that if you don't know what I call something, you call it something else, you can just look it up in the index. I call myself FAB, Functionally Alert Behavior Strategies. And I also have um, a Facebook FAB Strategies uh, site. So um, people are welcome to connect with me in any of those ways or email me or whatever. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, let's just stay in touch and do this again. Thanks. It's been All a right. blast. Take care. All right. Thank you so much again to Dr. John Pagano for coming on to the OT Schoolhouse podcast and talking about complex behaviors. Hope you all uh, gained some knowledge from that. Be sure to check out otschoolhouse.com forward slash episode 51 for all of the show notes and links to John's pages such as fabstrategies.com. All right. We will see you next time for episode 52. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to otschoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed.